0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this BTOG webinar on the update of ASCO 2020 in just one hour. Uh, my name is Tom Newsom-Davis. I'm a medical oncologist from Chelsea Westminster Hospital and delighted to be uh, Vice-Chair of Talk and your host, ladies and gentlemen, uh, tonight. Um, so, uh, first thing to say is we thank our sponsors of BTOG for helping support this webinar series, particularly important in an ASCO update to say that they do not have any role whatsoever in what is planned or what is presented as an entirely independent as you might imagine. Uh, BTOG is an organisation we, we love dearly, um, as indeed we do Dawn and Gina who run the show. So if you'd like to be in contact uh, with us, here are our email addresses and website. And if you're not a member, why on earth aren't you a member? Please do sign up. Um, So, we would love you to submit some questions. We try to rattle through the presentations reasonably swiftly and then have about 15 minutes for questions and answers. I think it's always the best bit. So please do tap them into the Q&A panel on Zoom. It will appear as if by magic. Um, And then you can send your uh, feedback and in return you get a shiny certificate of attendance which is all recognised by the RCP if that's the kind of thing you like to do. So here is our uh, agenda and our panel uh, and our three speakers covering immunotherapy for lung cancers, mutation-driven non-small cell lung cancer, adjuvant, neoadjuvant, and locally advanced. Before we kick off, I just want to say one thing. When we uh, announced this panel, it was uh, noted, as we indeed we had noted, it is an all-male panel, and that did create some reaction on Twitter. We are, of course, very, very aware of this, and we're very aware of people's feelings and take that very seriously. But I would just say that when we are trying to do all of our BTOC activities, we're very uh, mindful of our, our need to be inclusive, and we do so based not only, of course, on, on gender, but also race, geography, Uh, tumour type speciality and region including devolved nations and that's particularly challenging to always get complete representation and that's even more the case in ASCO when of course we are dependent on people actually being at ASCO, it's a difficult meeting to get to, being able to commit to several hours to create these talks in between ASCO and this meeting and actually being able to make this date as well. So although we never want to have any panel where any one particular group is excluded, and we absolutely take on board people's comments in this situation, it was unfortunately uh, unavoidable. Uh, that being said, we're going to move on to our first uh, presentation. I'm very grateful for the assistance of Alistair Greystoke. Ali is a senior lecturer and medical oncologist at the Sir Bobby Robson Clinical Trials Unit at the Freeman Hospital in Newcastle. And Ali's is going to take us through immunotherapy updates in thoracic cancers from ASCO. Ali, the floor is yours.
1: Thanks very much, Tom, and uh, thanks very much to for the invitation. As Tom said, this is going to be a little bit of a whirlwind, and just some highlights of what I thought were interesting and might perk people's interests. Those are my disclosures. So I guess the question is, uh, everyone's asking is, is this going to be practice changing from the point of view of our immunotherapies? We've had lots of changes over the last few years. And I guess these are key questions that when I go to ask, I want answered is, you know, are, are there new agents coming through? What should be our optimal frontline treatment, both small cell and, and non-small cell lung cancer? Uh, what we do in the situation where patients have chemotherapy and immunotherapy up front and they progress, you know, do we have any good options for them? And also starting to look at some of the more difficult populations that aren't always enrolled in the pivotal studies, and we'll see some data as those as we go forward. So I'm, I'm going to start with the, uh, the bad news first, which was the uh, presentation of the Skyscraper 2 results. So um, many of you will have seen this. This was a phase three study in, in small cell cancer, looking at adding in a, a new drug into our standard regimen of carboplatin, etoposide, and the to patients with extensive small cells. So trying to see if we can improve outcomes. And uh, so this was a 500 patient randomised phase 3 study patients had to be fit, and uh, they could have brain metastasis, but they couldn't have any symptoms. And they received what we would regard as standard treatment with carboplatin and toposide, going on to uh, maintenance of cetezolizumab, with or without a monoclonal antibody that targets another checkpoint called TIGIT. And this was on the basis of some uh, provocative uh, data in non-small cell, lab data, and and phase 1 data. And... uh, is is one of the most negative studies, unfortunately, that we've seen. You can see that both the PSF curves and the overall survival curves uh, basically completely overlapped. It does give us um, uh, the only good news about this study was that the median survival in both arms was just over one year, which is the first time that's been sort of seen in a phase three study in, in extensive small cell lung cancer, but a completely negative study. So um, there was a little bit of criticism on Twitter about the move straight to phase one to phase three uh, without a phase two study. I I think that's unfounded. I think um, we can talk about how important survival endpoints are in immunotherapy studies and this study recruited very quickly and we'll learn a lot from it. Um, I don't think we should extrapolate from the small cell studies to the ongoing non-small cell uh, studies uh, using this drug uh, targeting TIGIT and other agents targeting TIGIT. I think the immune environment in small cell is very different. But I do think we do now need to move forward of just adding in another drug and hoping it's gonna work. There is increasing data that small cell can be stratified by biological type and that some of these are more prone to, uh, more uh, vulnerable to treatment with immune therapies than others. And there's some interesting new agents coming through uh, that we can maybe talk about in questions. So I'm afraid that was about it for small cell uh, uh, in terms of practice changing a negative study which didn't change practice. Uh, the next question is um, Well, what should we use in the frontline setting? We, we, we talk about this all the time in our clinics. If you have a patient with high PDL1 non small cell lung cancer, we have access in the NHS to both chemotherapy and immunotherapy combination or a single agent immunotherapy. So, this was a pooled analysis from the FDA looking at over 12 studies that had been submitted to them for licensing, where either chemotherapy and immunotherapy had been compared to platinum doublet chemotherapy or uh, single-agent immunotherapy had been compared to platinum doublet chemotherapy. So, there, And there were some differences between the studies. Um, some of the studies used nivolumab and ipilimumab, so 9LA and Checkmate 227 were in there. But overall, there was over 3,000 patients and over 1,600 that received immunotherapy, so a very useful resource, and uh, where they've got patient-level data. Not hugely representative of, of our real-world population, so it was uh, highly biased towards males, 65% males, very little in the way of people over 75, only 11%, and very Caucasian-driven. But taking all that with a pinch of salt, you can see that overall, there wasn't any difference statistically in um, overall survival. Uh, hazard ratio close close to one, uh, slightly higher uh, with um, the medians of a couple of months. What there was a difference for, and I've plotted this myself because it wasn't plotted in, in the talk, was well, you can see, there's a higher response rate, as we might anticipate and a slightly better progression-free survival, although again, this did not make statistical analysis. I think what is helpful is looking at the forest plot, and you can see that the patients who seem to maybe not benefit so much from the addition of chemotherapy was the over 75, although so a very small population. And if those in particular who do seem to benefit are the uh, never smokers. And so, uh, this is my view, uh, this, uh, on the left I've shown the recent real-world data that was presented, uh, recently published in the Annals of Oncology looking at a very similar question, and again showing no survival benefit of using chemotherapy, immunotherapy, over-immunotherapy in the frontline setting, except, on the forest plot again, in never-smokers. So, I think our default now should be single-agent, except where we have never-smokers, and you need to make sure those are fully profiled to make sure you're not missing the non cogene driven cancer, as we'll hear from Yaz and maybe the younger patients, and maybe when you need a need for response, but there are phase three studies that will help inform this, but for the present, I think that is now my view. And then uh, there are a couple of studies looking in the second line setting um, as to uh, what we should do in patients who have progressed on chemotherapy or chemo- and, and or immunotherapy. I'm going to show one of them, but I'll highlight the data of the other one. So. This was a uh, a randomized phase two, um, a relatively small study, just over hundred patients. And this was conducted within the uh, lung map study, which was a bit like our national lung matrix study where they were looking for personalized therapy. But if you didn't have a personalized therapy, uh, then you could go into this arm where you were randomized either to investigator's choice or to treatment with Pembrolizumab again, so immunotherapy again, and uh, a monoclonal antibody against VEGF remicurumab. Now there were some imbalances uh, which you can sometimes have uh, in, when you have a relatively small study like this. So um, both performance status, pd one and tumor mutation burden all did favor the uh, investigational arm. So we do have to bear that in mind when we're looking at these results. And to be this, you had to be fit and you couldn't have had early progression on either chemotherapy or immunotherapy. So they were getting rid of the worst population. So uh, this study did meet its uh, survival uh, endpoint. You can see an improvement in immediate survival by three months with a hazard ratio of 0.69, which I think is, is certainly interesting. interesting. Um, you can see there the standard of cares that were received. So a number of patients received mab anyway, but in combination with chemotherapy, docetaxel, and that's the sort of standard American second-line treatment. And then a few others, but also do know that six patients didn't receive any treatment at all, just went on to best supportive care in the non-investigational arm. Interestingly, there was no difference in, in, in response rate between the two arms. You can see the response rate was at 22%. Um, duration of response, however, was longer in the arm with immunotherapy. And I've shown you there on the right, the progression-free survival curves. And you can see that maybe this is all very driven by the tail, you know, 10 or 15% of patients who are still responding to the immunotherapy. So um, what does this mean? Well, uh, there I've done a t- little table showing you the response rates, the progression-free survival, and overall survival of this study, the investigator choice, the other post IO study that was presented using another like an oral anti-angiogenic and also some real world data using intendinib and docetaxel. And I think uh, what's interesting is that the first and third do seem to have improved survival, but actually if you look at response rates, they're all relatively high and relatively similar and higher than we would standardly anticipate with things like chemotherapy um, in the pre IO era. However, it's very difficult to know who these people are, what their previous response rate was to immunotherapy, how long they had. Um, and, and so to me, I think the best treatment is still unclear. Uh, I think the, the main thing is that when we're talking to patients about an taxol, we can say that response rates do seem to be better than historically, but I, feel, I still feel that like this is a space where we don't quite know what to do and we, we still need better treatments. and then i'm going to spend just a little bit of time on some uh, two stu- a couple of studies looking at uh, difficult populations so this was an updated study called the atizo brain so this was looking uh, it's again it's a relatively small study uh, treatment naive non small cell lung cancer untreated brain metastasis um pdl one but ha- couldn't have an egfr on alk so this was a 40 patient study um, they, they couldn't have any neurological symptoms, but they could be on DEX and anticonvulsants up to four milligrams a day. And they were treated with carboplatin, pemtrexed, and atezolizumab. And there was a number of endpoints, including safety, progression-free survival, etc. So um, I have included the baseline data for, for, for trials, but actually, if you look at it, this, is, this was a pretty good real-world population, at least for a trial. So most of them were patients with performance status one, and on average, they had five brain metastasis. So this is not a super-selected population. And what you can see is that actually the response rate in the brain does seem to match up very nicely to the systemic overall response rate at at over 40%, which is what I would normally quote for chemotherapy and immunotherapy in combination. If you look at progression-free survival, very similar between the extracranial and intracranial disease maybe slightly worse uh, in, the, in, in the brain. And if they did progress in the brain, they could have radiotherapy and continue on study. And you can see overall survival in this population with brain mets of up to 12, uh, close to 12 months. What was interesting is as you'd expect patients who had pdl one positive tumours did, did better than those that didn't. But what I found is very interesting is that those patients on steroid at baseline did just as well as, as those who didn't need steroids. And so, uh, you know, I think this is an impressive response rate, higher than we would expect. There's a meta-analysis there of single-agent immunotherapy uh, in brain disease. Most of, a lot of these patients had very small disease and were not on steroids, and the response rate there is about 17%. This was a real-world population. It was certainly safe. They didn't see any excess toxicity. Um, can we, should we be extrapolating this to pembro? Uh, using just a different immunotherapy, or should we be looking at the ABCP regimen using the bevacizumab, which may also be useful in brain mets? And again, unfortunately, not a huge amount of detail in this about uh, the ish- differences between pd one expression, squamous versus non-squamous cancer, and certainly of interest to me would be the time to radiotherapy. Um, and then the, the last study I want to talk to you about, again, in difficult populations, either those who are not fit those who are older. So, so this was a, a French study, and interesting study design. Either randomising to platinum doublet chemotherapy with or without maintenance, or nivolumab and low dose ipilimumab. A bit like the regimen that's coming forward in mesothelioma, of over nivolumab was given every two weeks. And so, to go on the study, you either had to be older, and that was described as seventy, and we can talk talk about that in questions. Uh, and if you're over seventy, and or oh, oh performance status too. okay. Um, And yeah, uh, the primary uh, endpoint was survival. And so the interesting thing about this was that depending on which group you were in, we saw that the curves were completely the other way around. So in the overall survival patients, um, sorry, the overall survival in the older patients over 70, if you were fit, they did much better with dual agent immunotherapy than with chemotherapy. But if you were performance status two, actually you did better with chemotherapy than than with dual agent chemotherapy, sorry, immunotherapy. So, sorry, let me try that again. If you're old but fit, you do better with immunotherapy. If you're unfit, then you do better with chemotherapy than immunotherapy. And, you know, this leads me to reflect on the performance status 2 population, which is really challenging and trying to work out whether we should treat these patients with immunotherapy or not. And, you know, we've previously seen the PEPs-2 study in the UK. So here I've shown an Italian study, which was in performance status two, and what was interesting in the patients who were performance status two due to comorbidity, they actually did really well with immunotherapy. But if you're performance status two due to tumor burden, then you do really badly. So maybe not all patients with performance status two are the same. So in terms of difficult populations, uh, I think we can consider giving chemo IO in patients with brain mets, even if they require steroids and if we're allowed. Older patients with cancer can do really well with immunotherapy, either be a single agent or combination. There was a really nice presentation I've included for for purposes of time from Notch looking at pre-existing autoimmune disease and chance of flare. And I'd advise you to look at that. You can have informed discussion. But patients who are performance status 2, it really does remain a challenge and it may depend on why they're performance status 2. So overall, in that quick whirlwind, I think I would describe ASCO 22. 22 for my patch of immunotherapy in stage four as not really practice changing, but it probably has has helped refine my practice. Thank you very much and back to Tom.
0: Ali, thank you. That was magnificent. And you get uh, a gold star for being under 15 minutes. And I asked my fellow panel members to take note of his efficiency. Um, So there's lots of uh, things which have cropped up to my mind. There's some questions rocking up in our Q&A box. So keep on sending them through the very best uh, and maybe the very, very worst will be selected for discussion. Uh, we're going to move on uh, to Riaz Shah. Riaz is a, a consultant medical oncologist, friend of the show, friend of BTOG, uh, and great support of our organisation. He's a medical oncologist in the uh, beautiful Kent Oncology Centre, and he's going to tell us about mutation-driven non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, Riaz, take it away.
2: Thank you, Tom. Welcome, everyone. My disclosures. Uh, this is designed to be relevant to UK practice and obviously practice standards do vary around the world and even within our devolved nation, so please be conscious of that. Now, there are eight FDA approved actionable mutations, nine if you split EGFR into Exxon 20 insertions and the rest. Every single one of these is available in theory in your national test directory. Every single one of these has a licensed drug in, in, within our country and is reimbursed in NHS England. However, uh, I'm very sad to report that access to drugs and appropriate genomics is highly variable uh, across our nations. Um, uh, the particular outliers are Scotland and Northern Ireland, where um, access to biomarker testing is not universal. Uh, sometime, and we've got a really odd situation. We've got a situation where sometimes drugs are available, but not the companion diagnostics, so you could never diagnose it in the first place. Uh, So this is clearly an unsatisfactory situation. So with that background, I want to introduce this study to you, abstract 9.922. This has come from the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Agarwal's team, and they've looked at comprehensive genotyping in a retrospective study. So we know NGS on tissue detects mutations. We know that circulating tumour DNA also tests mutations. And we know that if you do both, you detect more mutations. Well established. What they did is a retrospective series of 335 patients who had molecular testing, and they looked at the patients in whom all seven at that time, there were seven FDA approved, all seven results were known. And what they found is that 87% of patients had full comprehensive testing. And your chances of having comprehensive testing were way higher if you'd had tissue and plasma NGS as opposed to tissue alone. The other thing they showed is that patients that had comprehensive testing had a better survival, median of 22 months, over 11.6 months, looking at patients who had incomplete molecular testing. And even more importantly, if you looked at all of the patients who just had comprehensive testing, the survival was even better in those where all of the results were known before any first-line treatment decision was made. So this is really powerful data. I think this is the final nail in the coffin for people that are denying the importance of genotyping in lung cancer. Upfront comprehensive genotyping should be standard of care. And what does that look like? Tissue NGS, DNA, RNA panel, ctDNA. This is a rallying cry for our community. Devolved nations need to act together on this. And even in NHS England, where the GLHs are established, reflex testing is not standardly available. There are huge disparities. And this is the only thing I want you to remember for what I'm saying. And GLHs have medical directors who are responsible for delivering this. Uh, So if you're not getting reflex testing at your centre, you know who to talk to. Right. You don't need to remember anything else that I'm talking about. Let's talk. I'm going to whiz through a few things very quickly. So EGFR, what happens after osimertinib? Well, we know lots of things happen, very complex acquired resistance pathways, new on-target mutations like C797S MET amplification, small cell transformation, chemotherapy. Um, I want to introduce this study to you, the Chrysalis II study, using a bispecific met EGFR antibody called amivantamab and lazertinib in patients who are progressing after osimertinib and chemotherapy. Amivantamab already has a label in exon 20 insertions and lazertinib is a T790M active brain penetrant third generation TKI. And what was presented is data from a cohort of common mutation patients who've been previously treated, uh, multiply treated, 40% with brain metastases, 33% overall response rate uh, by investigators, uh, by um, um, blinded independent review, investigator assessed 28% and you see all subgroups seem to uh, have a similar result. So interesting, uh, this is the waterfall plot, uh, there was brain activity with uh, clearance in a large number of patients who had brain metastases going into this study. Where is this going? Well, we're all awaiting the results of the Mariposa study. So this is treatment naive patients who are randomized to four arms, uh, three arms, I beg your pardon, one of which is osimertinib arm B, and the other arms are amilazertinib and then uh, uh, lazertinib on its own. Arms B and C are blinded, double blinded. So let's see where that's going. I'm going to move very quickly on to MET, completely different. Knight's move now. MET is really complicated. All sorts of things can happen in MET. Overexpression, amplification, fusions and something called exon 14 skipping mutations. Um, And it's a common mechanism of acquired resistance to multiply actionable uh, uh, pathways. So what is an exon 14 skipping mutation? An exon 14 skipping mutation is basically you get substitutions or indels happening flanking exon 14 of the DNA code for the met gene. And it results in complete skipping of exon 14. So the protein that gets uh, transcribed, the receptor, lacks the bit of protein encoded by exon 14. So what does that encode? Well, it encodes a particular motif that is important for ubiquitination. Um, which is a mechanism of degradation. So basically, met ex- exon 14 skipping mutations mean that MET is stabilized, it isn't ubiquinated, it, isn't dis- um, uh, dig- uh, it doesn't get um, removed from the cell, and-, and it promotes cellular signaling. And we know that this happens in a small number of lung cancer patients, and we've got two licensed drugs. Uh, and the chrysalis study looked at the drug we've already talked about, amivantamab, uh, as a single agent in a dose escalation fashion to look at its activity in metexon 14 skip, uh, skipping mutations. And it has some activity, 55, 57% response rate in treatment naive, 33% in the overall population. You can see these spider plots, look at the blue dots, uh, the blue lines are patients who have responded, and you can see some patients have very uh, durable responses with rapid responses. So interesting, not licensed. Important issue about um, met toxicity uh, is hypoalbuminemia and peripheral edema. Edema are common class effects of met uh, inhibitors. And with amivantamab, it's well recognised that infusion reactions can occur. There is talk of a subcutaneous preparation of amiv- amivantamab that has much less of that. I'm now going to move to something completely different. KRAS. So there are three studies in KRAS. I want to just briefly go through very quickly. So this is an FDA pooled analysis. What they want to know is, do KRAS mutant patients uh, behave any differently to KRAS wild type patients when they're given immunotherapy or chemo immunotherapy? And this is a pooled result of 12 randomized trials, 12 registration studies comparing chemo to IO or chemo to chemo IO. And they basically um, did a big meta-analysis, 8,888 patients in total in all of those trials, but only 1,430 had KRAS status um, um, documented. And what you can see is in the top of this table that the pdl one split in the KRAS mutant patients is pretty similar to the KRAS wild-type patients. You can see that the overall response rate uh, in patients who are having chemo IO is the same, whether they're mutant or wild-type. Whether in the if they're having IO alone, that there is no difference, and if they're having chemo alone, there is no difference. Notable numerically, the response rate seems to be higher for chemo IO. If you look at survival, again, no difference with chemo IO, chemo alone or IO alone. And you can see the curves are all overlapping. So basically giving us confidence that KRAS mutated patients behave very similarly to either IO or chemo IO. But there, is, there does seem to be a suggestion that chemo IO is, is a more effective, more appropriate treatment for these patients if they're, they're fit enough. So that's that. The next thing about KRAS patients is about acquired resistance. So, we already have Sotorazib available uh, as a result of this study, Codebreak 100. And this is a molecular analysis from the Codebreak 100 trial where they got 67 lung cancer patients and they did circulating DNA before entry into the study and then when they progressed. And what they found is that 28% of patients developed some sort of genomic alteration. Uh, some of them were compound mutations. And if you look at these mutations, you see a wide Wide variety of things, including EGFR mutations, MET mutations, FGFR2, ROS1, but many of these are potentially targetable. And so, what they're building is a very complex pathway. And this is important because I think this is uh, going to give us avenues of potentially future targeted therapies to rescue patients who become resistant to KRAS inhibitors. And this is very much the flavor of the month across the tyrosine kinase family of receptors, where we have multiple uh, uh, treatments that we're now giving patients. We're seeing complex uh, multi-mutation mechanisms of resistance and we're working out how we're going to tackle these. So, in in the future, we may be able to deliver personalized approaches to overcome resistance, and ctDNA technology is going to be key to delivering this degree of complexity due to the difficulties of tissue acquisition. The last thing I'm going to talk about in uh, uh, KRAS is a new G12C inhibitor called adagrazib. We already have Sotarazib or Sotarazib, whichever way you want to pronounce it. This is a uh, drug that's given uh, BID, in capsule form, you have to be fasted, and the data is very similar to Sotirazib. Uh response rate 43%, rapid responses within 1.4 months median, duration of response 8.5 months. So it all looks very interesting, but what was nice about this is they had a bit more uh, uh, clarity on intracranial response. So, intracranial disease control rate was 85% from the Codebreak 100 study. Sotorazib, 88%, was presented at World Lung last year. So, it seems like we've got two drugs now that are potentially very similar. So, KRAS patients respond to IO or chemo IO probably favours chemo IO. Multiple mechanisms of acquired resistance are now recognised, and some of these may be potentially actionable, and adagrazib is likely to be comp- approved in the future. And the last gene I'm going to talk about is this one, ENTRAP, the holy grail. So we have entrectinib and larotrectinib approved uh, for this um, uh, rare subtype of lung cancer. We had updated results on both. So this abstract is giving updated efficacy data on Entrectinib, uh, 150 patients. Uh, the bigger response rate is 61% and it's 54, 25 and 70% in track 1, 2 and 3 respectively. Uh, the response was independent of the number of previous lines of therapy. Median duration of response 20 months median survival 37 months, intracranial response rate 69%, and manageable toxicity, so treatment-related adverse events leading to discontinuation 7%. So intrectinib, very active. Another abstract looked at larotrectinib, Um, This is the one that we have on label, 100 milligrams twice a day, much smaller number of patients, but very similar data. Response rate of 83%, median overall survival 41%. No treatment related adverse events leading to discontinuation. So very interesting there. A couple of other things on uh, NTRAP that I thought were interesting. This was an abstract looking at larotrectinib and quality of life. And uh, I'm told uh, reliably that these curves imply that patients who were given larotrectinib had rapid and sustained quality of life improvements. And I've no doubt that that is indeed the case. And then this last study, which I think is really interesting, is a retrospective review of the Flatiron database. So this is a massive US database of real world data patients. And they looked at all the patients that had track fusions and split them into patients that actually got a track inhibitor and those that didn't get a track inhibitor. And those that were treated with inhibitors had a median survival of 39.7 months, very similar to the updated efficacy data from laro and entrectinib, versus those who had, had the fusion but didn't get treated 10.1 months so really important it means if you find these patients you can dramatically turn their lives around by treating them with a track inhibitor it's critically important to detect these patients we must find these patients if you don't look you will not find most of us are using rna panels to detect this they have very high failure rates and we need to work very hard to reduce those rates uh, and there are well-recognised systems to try and achieve that. So in summary, this isn't really personalised medicine. This is about making a correct diagnosis and starting patients on the correct treatment. And that's all I've got to say. Thank you.
0: Well, that was magnificent, Riaz. You get two gold stars because uh, you did it in less than 15 minutes. This is, this is unheard of. Um, uh, and I think you're right about, about both the presentations so far, which is lots of stuff there and it may not be practice changing, but I think practice refining is definitely the word of the day, um, along with ubiquitinization, which I can't say. Uh, our final presenter is uh, Jerry Hanna, that's Professor Jerry Hanna to you and me. Uh, Jerry is a professor, as I mentioned, at Queen's University in Belfast, recently returned having been the Director of Radiation Oncology at Peter Mac in Melbourne. We're delighted he's been brought back uh, to the UK for the rain and the weather. And Jerry's going to update us on adjuvant, neoadjuvant, locally advances, I think is probably the area in lung cancer where the really exciting data is. And so, Gerry, uh, take it away. The floor is yours. And don't forget to turn your camera on. Are you there? Hang on one second, we're just going to try to rescue Jerry. Matt, I think Jerry's struggling too. There we go.
3: There we are, that's great. Thank you Lovely. very much. Thanks, Tom, and thanks for the welcome introduction, too, as well. Now, hopefully, the 15 minutes will only start from this point, not before. And thanks for asking me to do this uh, presentation on adjuvant, neoadjuvant, non-small cell. Those are my disclosures, none of which are relevant to today. Uh, and we're going to just talk through those three topics, starting off, of course, with uh, adju- uh, adjuvant. Before I do that, I just want to just show this lovely timeline which I borrowed from Dr Patel from Northwestern University. That really is a lovely summary of where we've come from uh, over the last uh, two decades in, in lung cancer. I thought it was one of the nicest slides depicting the progress we've made, but how much is expanding and exploding in our world and how hard it is to keep on top of everything, as, as you've seen from some of the uh, previous presentations. So looking forward. Here's ASCO, and we're looking forward with neoadjuvant therapy. If you don't mind the association, and this was just an update, a really a reanalysis of CheckMate 816. CheckMate 816 was a study uh, looking at neoadjuvant uh, nivolumab uh, and chemotherapy. Um, uh after uh, people who'd had resectable stage 1b to 3a non-small cells seeing did nivolumab and chemo improve survival over chemotherapy and of course that that was a a positive trial that's been presented previously this is comparing the pathological analysis and what was very interesting on this is to show that the pathological analysis compared or was very highly associated with the uh, the uh, p- with patient outcome, both in terms of event-free survival and overall survival. Therefore, saying look, uh, pathological response really predicts very well for how you do in in this in in, in this regard. So I think what this could be used is probably tailor future studies in this regard. Um, and that was by, uh, regardless of stage of disease uh, and and uh, uh, other baseline factors too as well. And uh, this is by PD-1 expression, still a separation in the curves here too as well. One interesting caveat that was discussed about this study was the type of chemotherapy used along with nivolumab. And it's worth saying that people who had carboplatin when you uh, you look at this, really seem to do better. Uh, If you look at the top graph, event-free survival, they seem to do better they had uh, carboplatin, and that was usually with carbotaxel as the chemo uh, regime compared to cisplatin-based regimes. And then the question is, why might that be the case? Is it the carboplatin or is the carboplatin the taxol? Uh, And that certainly was an interesting question. We obviously, of course, uh, still haven't fully answered that in other stages of disease. Another interesting neo-adjuvant study was the NEOSCORE study. Uh, this was looking um, at uh, acetylidinib, which is actually a PD-1 uh, a- antagonist. And this is a study from China. And um, this looked at giving two cycles of acetylidinib alongside chemotherapy versus three cycles of the same regime and looking again at pathological responses as a surrogate for outcome or indeed for survival. And if you look at it here, here's the pathological response rates. 6.9% NPR uh, with two cycles versus 41.4, uh, a clear uh, a difference numerically, uh, if not, uh, uh, but not statistically. Uh, and that's the same also uh, uh, for a path CR rate too as well. But really excellent results in this uh, trial, very high and superior outcomes, and a very high level of complete surgical resection, which are really excellent surgical outcomes. So perhaps very highly selected population, if I may suggest, as well so takeaways really from neoadjuvant uh, chemo io it's a new standard of care but how do we fit it our current treatment pathway guidelines how do we select those patients who would have that pathway versus adjuvant or indeed go to uh, other forms of treatment and that's going to be a, a certainly an interesting point over the next couple of years as we develop national guidelines in this regard what's very clear is pathological response rates as have happened in other tumor sites such as breast cancer predict very strongly for outcome. What's the optimal cycles? Well, three seems better than two. Which chemo? Can't say for certainty, but carbo may be better than this. And what about the use of adjuvant IO afterwards? We just don't know that. And can you add in radiation to increase response rates? Perhaps more about that uh, later on. Uh, now, looking at uh, back at adjuvant, this is looking back to beautiful city of Chicago. And um this was a, a very interesting adjuvant study to me. This looked at concurrent chemo radiation with platinum doublet chemotherapy, and patients were randomized to receive either nivolumab alone or indeed nivolumab alongside epilimimab. And you can see this, the trial design as presented. This was a North American study by Durham et al. And uh, the endpoint was 18 month progression free survival. And there are a few other secondary endpoints on this. The really disappointing thing here is. You know, intensifying the immunotherapy by adding Epi with Nevo hasn't improved outcomes and both for progression-free survival and overall survival. There was no difference in either arm. Some suggestions as to why that might be, one is that the Nevo arm alone performed really well and certainly seemed compared very favourably to the specific data too as well. Um, But again, it may not, although you can't really technically compare these lines because it was a phase two study, I don't think you'll see that in a phase three study near us any time soon. This now is looking at the uh, Pearl's Keynote 091 study by our wonderful Mary O'Brien from the Royal Morrison. And this, again, is looking at stage 1B uh, to 3A non-small, so completely resected, um, and then uh, randomised to either pembrolizumab uh, three weekly for 18 administrations or placebo. And you'll have seen this presented, this data, elsewhere. Um, again, there was an a, a improvement in disease-free survival with this particular treatment. Now, what this uh, study was looking was looking at the subgroup analysis and saying were there subgroups that actually had a significant improvement. Uh, And the outcome from this study was that really that Pembro adjuvantly increased disease-free survival, regardless of the type of surgical resection you had, regardless of the degree of lymph node involvement or your tumour size and indeed regardless of the type or extent of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So really again suggesting the use of adjuvant pembro in stage uh, 1b to 3a if completely resected and if, they, if recommended that they've also had adjuvant uh, chemotherapy too as well. Uh, just a tiny poster came across, quite a curious one, this is a Cotinib, uh, it's a, 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 um, a, a EGFR inhibitor made by uh, a Chinese company, and this is just early phase one. But just to say, we've already had obviously a Dura, but there will clearly be a number uh, of uh, more later phase studies of other TK inhibitors coming in that space of uh, adjuvant therapy in, in mutation positive non-small cell lung carcinoma. It's uh, so one of my adjuvant takeaways. It's a, a single a- a agent immunotherapy may be enough. There is, seems to be no benefit by combination therapy so far, but it's a phase two. Perils confirms a subgroup across a benefit across subgroups, and other adjuvant TKIs are on their way. A few little cu- reflections that came in some of the discussions is: what about the timing of perioperative IO? Should it be neo-adjuvant? Well, benefits are early eradication you can get rid of micrometastatic disease, early that may change the dial. You have better and increased usage of IO because everybody generally gets it. Most patients complete and compliance is good. And you also can then find out more about how that patient's going to fare in terms of prognosis as we saw earlier. Pathological response could also guide further intensification of therapy down, down the track. Of course, the big problem in the adjuvant, you can get progression, and the benefit of adjuvant, therefore, is you've gone straight to surgery and the tumor is out. There's no pre-surgery complications that may flow on, and you might get a longer treatment duration, enhancing that systemic control. And the benefit is regardless of subgroup, but it's unclear if chemotherapy is synergistic or additive in the adjuvant IO setting. So, So some interesting reflections that I certainly took away from that group. Or might you have both? That might be also the direction of travel, too, as well. Now, a bit, something of the night as they say, both with surgery and radiation, and of course Chicago at nighttime so down the river, really beautiful uh, uh, scenery, but a few curious studies, this was a early phase study by Ori et al, and this was looking at giving induction Pembro with PET-based uh, hypofractionated radiotherapy. quite a curious dose 48 grey and 20 fractions, followed by adjuvant Pembro by 36 weeks and uh, comparing that to thoracic radiation with carboplatin uh, placitaxel followed by o- uh, the optional adjuvant systemic therapy of your choice now we didn't get good outcome readings from this but that what we did was get feasibility and i think you'll see this type of approach being used in chemo radiation studies but with hypofractionation it's quite unique to see and i just wanted to include to flag that that is coming down the track here was another very curious hypofractionated study again from this is from north america and this was looking at uh, Comparing really giving derva alongside 60 gram 15 fractions, which is much more hyperfractionated than we use here in the UK with our 55 and 20 regime, uh, compared to giving derva alongside 60 gram 30 fractions. This early phase study met its primary objective and showed it was actually safe to to add the derva alongside the radiotherapy. But bizarrely, in the the standard fractionated arm, the 60 in 30, it, 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 when it did not receive its secondary objective because it was thought to be uh, uh, more toxic and had more treatment-related events. So it's quite interesting to see that. Well, you'd have guessed it would be another way around before this study happened. And again, I think we're going to see a little bit more adventurous radiation regimes around either adjuvant or indeed concurrent IO coming along. I want to turn last to surgery. This to me was one of the most intriguing presentations at ASCO. This was presented by a surgeon working in the Veterans Affairs. Uh, Veterans Affairs treats around about um, 6 million patients across the US, ex-veterans and their families. And he had built, basically, a model to analyze their database. Their database is quite huge. And he was looking at the quality of surgery metrics. And this is looking particularly now at stage one non-small cell surgery. looked at a number of different factors, things such as negative margin? Were enough nodes sampled? What was their section like? Did they do minimally invasive? Was the surgery in a timely manner? And what he showed was that the, in terms of people having a good number of quality metrics, I 11 to 12, only half the patients got that. That did improve a little over time, but still was not good in a very high quality healthcare system. But if you plot out those surgery metrics, and if you look at the slide, the blue line is 0-5 as a score, the top line is 11-12, it looks just like the staging atlas that we've had for non-small cell lung cancer for years. So therefore, quality of surgery has a huge impact. And this is stage one, this is not even late stage non-small cell lung cancer. So We've put a lot of work into optimizing radiotherapy, uh, put a lot of work into optimizing our chemotherapy pathways, our SAC pathways. It, maybe we need to actually focus a little bit more on our quality surgery. And this was certainly a very, a, a very much discussed presentation too, as well. Following on, GESFLT was a brilliant presentation, uh, not, not new data but from Nasser el who um, from uh, New York, and he'd give a really interesting presentation about time to surgery. And we've got certain guidelines, but in the end, if you, if you, if he presented some curious data said for every week that you wait for, uh, from your last intervention, be it neoadjuvant chemotherapy, diagnosis, you lose about 3% in survival per week. Uh, by waiting or delaying surgery. So timeliness of surgery has a real impact on outcome and it's something we should focus on as a community. So takeaways, induction I.O. followed by rhythm radiotherapy, and adjuvant I.O. seems to be feasible, could be associated with good outcomes. Concurrent dervolumumab appears to be challenging to complete, um, but uh, uh, you know, is feasible and hyperfractionate. Quality surgery is highly associated with outcome, and timeliness to surgery is definitely associated with better survival outcome. Thank you very much, Tom.
0: Gary, okay, that's magnificent. Uh, and would you believe it we are bang on? bang on 45 minutes to for the three talks. So that's fantastic guys, thank you very much indeed. Um, so I can't remember, we've got a and a slide I'm gonna try moving the slides on one and see what happens. Maybe we don't, we're just gonna chat among ourselves. Um, so do you send your questions through if you have any more to come through. I've got a few I've been scribbling down here, madly. So the first one, Ali is gonna to go to you, but I'm actually gonna ask all of you guys um, in kind of in sequence, but do please feel to, to chip in. Um, Ali, the TIGIT study, the very thing you opened with, the, with a lot of excitement about combination immunotherapies. We, we know that single agent Pembro can be fantastic, um, but it's not for everyone. It doesn't always work. TIGIT, another inhibitory pathway, inhibit that as well as a close association with PD1 and PDL1 pathway. Um, very negative study. There's also been a press release of a TIGIT. Um, uh, and a tzo study in non-small cell which is negative progression free survival though immediate but we don't know which is probably a point we don't know overall survival is tigit dead i say that as someone who recruited his first patient to a tigit chemo io study yesterday um does it just show that small cells are very hard or is it just far too early to say and hang in there and don't despair
1: well so i think the first thing to say is i agree really small cells are very hard and the immune environment in small cells is very hard you know we don't see much of a tail with a single agent uh, PD1, PDL1, or PDL1, I guess in, in small cell I, you know certainly I've got one or two patients who've done very well and you know after two years on IO and with extensive stage small cell. So it goes to the fact we probably need to understand that biology better, but, you know, pd one expression in small cells is relatively low. As you said, TIGIT seems to work on a similar sort of access. So this may not have been the right checkpoint. It may not have been the right immunotherapy, but I'm not convinced adding in another checkpoint in small cell is the right thing to do. You know, we've seen previous studies with NIVO-IPI that haven't done particularly well either. Um, is TIGIT dead? I don't think so yet. I think the jury's out. I think it's taken a big blow. It's staggering. And I think actually the press release that you uh, mentioned was probably a bigger hit to it, although we need to see that data, but it doesn't marry up to the Sky, um, Cityscape 2 that we saw at ASCO last year, the year before, that showed a, a big improvement in progression free survival by adding it in in the high PDL1. So not dead, but weakened. On, on level one,
3: on non-invasive ventilation. Tom, um, if I can come in, it was probably it, yeah, it was probably, probably was the most probably the most negative feedback I ever saw from a presenter about his own drug. He was quite clear; it definitely was of of no benefit whatsoever. And it kind of yeah. it was quite starting not even subgroup analysis. His answer was <laughs> no to every question. It was quite yeah. quite astonishing for a meeting you know. Yeah,
2: that's yeah.
3: true. <clears throat> um, you're absolutely right, Gary. And Riaz, I wonder if I could pick up on something. So. Ali alluded to the fact there was some
0: criticism on in the uh, discussion and sometimes on a bit of social media afterwards, that this was a phase three study without any phase two data, the small cell. and um, Maybe they shouldn't have done a phase two to save um, money, but most importantly, say, save patient recruitment to a trial that is not going to be effective. But then we've had lots of studies like the non-small cell where you've got a positive phase two, but actually the phase three doesn't pan out. Should we be doing phase twos always before doing phase three is it justifiable to go straight to a phase three what's your thought on that
2: yeah it's really interesting isn't it um i don't really have a view on it i've always int- i'm intrigued that uh, you know there are licensed drugs out there now in small molecularly sub targeted entrax a great example based on you know no randomized data at all um so at one level we accept very early phase if you like data in certain situations, and in other situations, we change our goalposts and say we want big randomized phase three studies. I, look, the digit thing is really exciting. I think everyone just needs to keep calm and just see the data as it comes out because these trials, yeah, they're running, but actually a lot of them are close to accrual and we're just waiting for readouts. So I think um, it was the 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 um, uh, what Alistair said about Cityscape and the high PDL one. I mean, it was a profound difference, um, and so. Uh, it would be shocking if that didn't uh, translate into some sort of phase three bigger trial difference. Yeah. It would really it would really kind of raise doubts about phase two studies in tertiary centres of excellence. And are these patients even representative of lung cancer patients at all?
0: Yeah, that's very helpful. Uh, we're now going to move to one of, Jerry, one of your uh, sub subjects and areas of questions coming about that. So um, we saw an update in Checkmate 816, which I, I think is one of the most important studies for a long time. I, I, as I say, a paradigm shift, we must always say paradigm shift as often as we can. Um, um, you talked about the study with concurrent chemo-RAD followed by niv which was disappointingly negative, although the nivolumab arm, control arm, so to speak, uh, not really controlled, up you know what I mean, overperformed. Um, but interestingly, the thing I, one thing I saw in ASCO was um, the NeoCo study, which was nivipi um, as a neoadjuvant treatment with a suggestion of a better uh, pathological complete response and major pathological response. So actually, there's a suggestion that neoadjuvantly, maybe combination chemo immunos, nivipi may be um, better who knows, it's all cross-trial comparison, Um, but actually in the uh, after chemo RAD doesn't appear to be terribly helpful. Um, What do you think the future is of trying to combine agents and immunotherapy agents, particularly the concern we don't have about radiotherapy, if we're going to be doing that, and surgery, if that's planned as part of a neuroadjuvant setting?
3: Tom is a really great question. I think you know th- there's two things. I think one is when you've got chemo radiation as your initial therapy, you've got such a really priming of neoantigens, you've got a really hot tumor environment. Therefore, I think it's not unsurprising that that nevo epi combination is negative simply because it, you know you've got all the immune. Stuff going and therefore picking up by one agent probably might be enough. That might be the reason why that's potentially negative. It may also be the wrong agent. Nippevivi may not necessarily work in non-small cell in that way. Whilst well, in the new agent, that you've got quite a cold tumor biologically speaking, therefore you might need more of an immune blockade to get going. That might possibly be the reason. I think there's so many unanswered questions i think we've got at least a good decade of trials say look how do we optimally sequence things how do we compare various groups of people you know there's even even getting a good marker of response is really challenging i do think the neoadjuvant studies do give us a lot of very intriguing information because of the pathology that comes out of that and we can maybe analyze that in a a lot greater detail so it's i mean we we, you, you think you've got a you know you've got somewhere but really we're only beginning to work out how that would be, and it'll change dramatically, I think, over 10 years. So uh, trials, trials, and more trials, again, is the answer. All right, Tate. Yeah, please, Tate.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, stage three setting is about to become a mess in our MDTs, it's gonna become very challenging. um because okay. the data is not the trials aren't directly comparative and a lot will depend on things like whether certain things is resectable there may be individual variation with that so I, I think it's very important that we bring all members of the mdt at least up to understanding these trials and thinking about how the patients fit uh-huh. into them and then trying to at least develop a consistent practice whilst we wait for other trial and capturing our real world data we need to w- work out what's happening as we start to use these agents in our patients
0: yeah, and, and I just to Sorry, I, t- 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 I don't want to touch on that. I think we should all do real world data, a- and certainly in BTOC, we're very keen to do national real world data um, studies. We, we've had success in doing that so far. So, if anyone's listening and wants to be involved in a real world study, do let us know. Um, Riaz, uh, just to touch f- for you quickly, um, there was something in BTOC, uh, sorry, in ASCO, sorry, which I can't actually remember the abstract, but it was looking at ctDNA clearance from the Nadeem 2 study. Nadeem 2, just let people know, is neoadjuvant nivipi surgery and then adjuvant nivolumab for six months, showing that if you clear your ctDNA quickly, you do better and you have a better outcome. Can you see a situation where you're going to be starting your patients on neoadjuvant treatment and doing their ctDNA, seeing if they're responding, if they're responding then that's super, and if they're not responding, you're going to escalate up? Or is this pie in the sky for quaternary cancer centres in West Coast America?
2: No, I don't think ctDNA is quaternary stuff at all. It should be standard of care. Uh, we have, I know of at least one agent, one manufacturer of ctDNA that is recognized as an NHS-approved um, um, entity. Uh, but uh, the reality is that most trusts have not uh, decided to commission it or don't understand it. It's a terrible, terrible situation we're in. Um, where many patients are having to self-fund it. I think ctDNA, I alluded to the importance of ctDNA in initial diagnostics, that if you combine ctDNA with tissue NGS, you're more likely to pick up clinically relevant mutations than doing just tissue on its own. So that's one big role for ctDNA. You're talking about MRD, minimal residual disease, and I think that's another uh, sort of uh, stream where ctDNA is almost certainly going to have a role in prognosticating patients who've completed some sort of curative, curative therapy in as to whether they need uh, dose escalation or surveillance. But, you know, all of that needs to be tested in randomised trials. You can't just assume that a ctDNA readout actually means anything clinically relevant without testing it in a prospectively designed study. So there's a huge, as, as, as was alluded to earlier, you know, we've got 10, 15 years of trials that we need to uh, sort out.
0: Absolutely. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um... I'm going to move on in our last uh, three, four minutes onto to KRAS, which is obviously very important. We now have a drug available. Um, I, mean, I, I loved your little picture of what's available across the various parts of the United Kingdom. It, it's not good enough that there is that variation. Um, but Sotoracib, what whatever you want to call it, is available. It's available, I think, in most bits of the UK after uh, platinum-based uh, chemotherapy. Um, the Adag- Adagrazib data, can't say that. Um, I thought that was a bit disappointing, Ali. What do you think? I mean, I think we were rather hoping that ADA was going to be a bit better, have a slightly longer progression-free survival than the kind of six months we seen with Satorazib, and actually it's kind of bang on the same thing. W- were you disappointed or were you cheered by the the, the
1: brain data? No, I, 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 was, I was disappointed. Um, you know, I think Zip and Adatograsib, you know, they give good responses, but the response uh, length of time is is not long enough, the response rate is not high enough, and they were very similar in terms of efficacy. And some suggestion that the toxicity might even be slightly worse, and certainly taking a tablet twice a day faster is far more difficult for my patient group. Um, There were lots of posters out there about some other agents coming through that have different mechanisms of action, Um, and that's probably a subject for another day, but hopefully we will see new agents coming through. But this is still a major advance on what we had a year ago. You know, we will be presenting our real world data together at ESMO, and I can tell you that the real world data does, does match the trial data, which is lovely.
0: That's very fine. I'm going to ask one more question, uh, uh, Riaz. The second question comes through, just, Jerry, someone's asked if they could have the reference, the abstract number for the timeliness to surgery data. I don't suppose you've oh, got yes, that. Sure. You could just yeah. dig it out and, sh- and shout out in, in, a, in a minute or so. Riaz, um, yeah. what do you think the future of combinations are for KRAS inhibitors? Because quite clearly by themselves, they're a bit disappointing. I mean, they're fine, but they're, they're not TKIs. We should not expect them to behave like TKIs. You're not, they're not the new ozimertinib. Some people talked about immunotherapy combinations, um, but there is a concern, I understand, about hepatic toxicity, maybe, that combination. People talked about uh, SHIP2 inhibitors uh, uh, joining in. Do you think we have an idea where we're going to go, um, the, fo- the future of k inhibition?
2: So I think I think right now the focus is going to be to, because there are different classes of inhibitors. So these two inhibitors, adagrasib, sotorazib, are off inhibitors. There are on inhibitors. (coughs) There are other inhibitors that are being developed for different uh, uh, KRAS uh, mutations, different allelic uh, 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 subtypes of KRAS. And there are even pan KRAS inhibitors that are in clinical trial development, like Boehringer have one. So uh, there's a company called, I think it's called Regeneration Medicine that has some really cool KRAS inhibitors. So um, what we need to work out first is, are any of these better? Is an in, on-inhibitor actually better than an off-inhibitor in real clinical practice? Does it offer anything over and above and or adagrazib? So I think that's going to take us two or three years to work that out. And then we need to work out combinations. Whenever you start combining drugs, it's always overlapping, you know, particularly TKIs and immunotherapy, you know, overlapping toxicities, renal toxicity, hepatic toxicity, pneumonitis. So you know there's a huge journey we're only just we've taken one step and with adagrasib half of another step that's it uh, there's a long long way to go it's hugely fascinating and such a common mutation in lung cancer yeah you know yeah, we've definitely. got so many patients with kras mutations
0: true um last question just just to the person who asked about the um the reference for tuminus. it's a korami um I think Jerry just put in. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, Altorki A L T O R K I uh, was the lead author at ASCO 2022, um, and you can find that on the ASCO website. Last yeah. question, Jerry, to you, and then we are. Then we, I think, we out of time. Tizo brain that the data that uh, that Ali showed us brain metastases in lung cancer so common, often these patients excluded from clinical trials, um, often from a blue tech form, certainly in in, in England um, and Wales, often excluded from treatment if they're symptomatic. What did you take home from that? Would, would, if you had a patient with a brain metastasis, does that give you reassurance that chemo IO is going to be uh, an effective treatment? And how do you uh, involve your neuro-oncology team and your patients with brain metastases?
3: Yeah, that's a really tricky one, Tom. Because it, we don't have a good treatment paradigm here, and the, one of the other problems is obviously in the radiation side. We've made a lot of progress with stereotactic radiosurgery, and we could get really good local control. One of the problems is obviously combining stereo with with IO. We get a we, we you can get a lot of enhanced you know intercranial toxicity, and that's the challenge. You know, if you've got somebody with you know asymptomatic brain Mets, they're small and they're doing really well, and they tease or chemo, you may well keep them going in that. And that there's, I don't think you have a cut point, but if you got a you know at-risk metastases or heavy burn you know somewhere near an area it could go wrong and you know they're not on drug you might get the SRS in before you do treatment so I don't think we know how how to sequence those patients but you know just to bear mind that SRS is a really good treatment for it particularly if you've got only two metastases inside the brain and we don't know of course we've really moved away from whole brain radiotherapy it's almost a thing of the past particularly in non-small cell still use it occasionally in small cell but I think again with with this really big improvement with IO, you're really being very effective inside the brain, we may see a real fall away in radiation use in that sense. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know. Yeah,
0: Definitely never do that. I think that brings us to the end. Matt, if we could just move on to our last slide, just with the details of upcoming um, Talk webinars. I'd like to thank uh, my colleague uh, Ali, uh, Greystoke, Jerry, Hanna and Riaz Shah uh, for all their work and effort. It's Herculean to do this, it's very difficult to try to pull this data together, so I'm extremely grateful uh, for them for doing so. Our next webinar is in September, so you've got a, a couple of months off guys to enjoy the, uh, the weather, and that's going to be the World Long and ESMO updates uh, which uh, a certain Professor Popat is going to uh, be hosting. Um, we very much hope everyone online is going to be joining us for the VTOG Summer Meeting, which is about two weeks, weeks away, um, so please do uh, come along to that. I think it's going to be fantastic. Uh, there you go, you can still register um, and you've got dates there and we've also got the mesothelioma um, essential update uh, which is in Uh, when is that? That's in December. That's a a while away yet. Um, So have a look on the website. Have a look at those. Um, Thank you all uh, for joining us and we hope to look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks at BTOG 2022. Bye-bye.